1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this beautiful Monday afternoon. Glad to be back in studio. Had a productive production week, a great holiday, and a long weekend, and uh, back hitting the ground running. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Ben Witherington III. He is a PhD and the author of Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. It's something of a novella that draws you into this biblical story in the context of the historical events that took place around uh, this woman and the ministry she engaged in with the Apostle Paul and her husband Aquila. Really a fascinating book. We'll talk about that as well as some others that that may also help you to um, better understand and. Uh, sort of appreciate the historical context of the events we find in the uh, the New Testament. Anyway, he's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, so I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation later in today's program. First, we want to take a look at some of the um, headlines from the last several days, beginning with, uh, what, Wednesday of last week, there was a Quinnipiac poll um, saying that uh, the former Vice President Biden's lead has shrunk to uh, a margin of two points. It uh, shows him at 22% Kamala Harris at 20 20 points, rather. Warren at 14, Sanders at 13. So the race is tightening, and we've already had one um, uh, of the uh, hopefuls uh, drop out earlier today. In other news, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey has withdrawn financial uh, support for Nike from the story. Words cannot express, he says, my disappointment at this terrible decision. I am embarrassed for Nike. Uh, Nike is an iconic American brand and American company. This country, our system of government and free enterprise have allowed them to prosper and flourish. Instead of celebrating American history, the week of our nation's independence, Nike has apparently decided that Betsy Ross is unworthy and has bowed to the current onslaught of political correctness and historical revisionism. It is a shameful retreat for the company. American businesses should be proud of our country's history, not abandoning it. Nike has made its decision and now we're making ours. He's withdrawn that financial offer that had been earlier made to uh, Nike. Alexander uh, DeSanctis writes this, excuse me, so the Chinese government and Colin Kaepernick then are either implicitly or explicitly calling the shots at Nike, pressuring the company into making business decisions to cater either to this mob or that, and those decisions aren't passing without comment. Anyway, all of this in response to the decision made by Nike to withdraw the Susan, um, uh, the flag uh, shoe that they had uh, had up for at least a day Um, When Colin Kaepernick pointed out that it has been co-opted by some uh, racist groups, the New York Times uh, tweeted uh, days before the fourth uh, that America isn't great. The tweet, the myth of America as the greatest nation on Earth is at best outdated and at worst wildly inaccurate. If you look at data, the U.S. is really just okay. That's the New York Times way of introducing the uh, holiday Independence Day. And in the Wall Street Journal, in an op-ed, Andy No writes, uh, that dazed and still hearing faint chants of no hate, I was then punched and kicked by perhaps a dozen masked people in black at an Antifa event meant to resist fascist violence. I, a gay journalist of color, was beaten so badly that I was hospitalized for a brain hemorrhage. Well, there's much more to be said about that. And now there have been calls from the chief of the Portland police to ban masks. I'm not sure mass was the uh, uh, source of the problem, but nonetheless, we'll return to that in just a little bit. In other news, despite concerns that he would use the Fourth of July event as a glorified campaign rally, the president used his salute to America speech Thursday evening to praise the men and women of the armed forces. And American exceptionalism, with the Lincoln Memorial as the backdrop flanked by camouflaged Bradley fighting vehicles, the president struck mainly to the script during his speech, praising the spirit that runs through the veins of every American patriot and attempting to strike a more unifying and conciliatory tone than he has generally known, uh, been known to take. And while his speech set a unifying tone, the lead-up to the event was far from harmonious, with the president's opponents, especially 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, slamming him on everything from the cost of the event to the perceived exploitation of the holiday for a political purpose. Two outside groups, the National Parks Conservation Foundation and Democracy Forward, want the Interior Department's internal watchdog to investigate what they say may be a potentially unlawful decision to divert National Parks' money, to Trump's spectacle. In other news, um, Ocasio-Cortez called the border officials liars after a new report on offensive Facebook posts was revealed in a Twitter message on Thursday of last week. The representative branded the leadership of the Customs and Border Protection as liars after a news site reported that the officials knew much longer uh, than they claimed about a Facebook group in which Some past and current uh, employees had posted offensive material. Ocasio-Cortez was the subject of some of this material. ProPublica, a self-described nonprofit news group, reportedly has obtained screenshots of doctored images of Ocasio-Cortez and the president. Another new senator, Ted Cruz, responded uh, Thursday night after former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick uh, posted a passage earlier on the 4th of July from a famous speech by Civil War era abolitionist Frederick Douglass. The passage that uh, he cites is from Frederick Douglass's speech What to the Slave is the 4th of July? Douglas delivered that speech at a meeting of the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society in Rochester, New York, on the 5th of July in 1852, nearly nine years before the Civil War began. Well, Kaepernick posted the uh, portion without adding any comments. What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? This 4th of July is yours, not mine. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States. At this very hour, you quote, um, Senator Cruz writes in response, a mighty and historic speech by the great abolitionist Frederick Frederick Douglass. But without context, many modern readers will misunderstand. And many modern readers did misunderstand, despite concerns that he would um, well, we're not going to go there strongest um, in 20 years. That's how they're describing the earthquake that shook Southern California, about one hundred and twenty five miles northeast of Los Angeles. Uh, there were no immediate reports of death, serious injuries or major infrastructure damage, although emergency responders were still inspecting areas around the city of Ridgecrest. Patients at Ridgecrest Regional Hospital were evacuated out of an abundance of caution, the hospital chief executive said. About 20 patients were transferred to other facilities while seismic engineers inspected broken pipes in that facility. Aftershocks have continued since the original uh, earthquake and the larger earthquake that followed. Meanwhile, Netflix has decided to cut down on smoking in their uh, movies, but irresponsible sex, pot smoking, prostitution, those things are still on the table. So, congratulations, Netflix. Unforeseen circumstances or unforeseen irony? Well, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton withdrew from the cybersecurity conference where she was scheduled to be the keynote speaker, citing an unforeseen circumstance, according to the email. From the FireEye Cyber Defense Summit. Clinton, who infamously transmitted classified information over a homemade server once housed in her bathroom, was to be the centerpiece of the uh, summit in Washington, <clears throat> excuse me, October 9th through the 10th. And driven largely by the Defense Department, the federal government's discretionary spending spiked to a seven year high in fiscal year 2018, with agencies obligating more than $554 billion for products and services, up $100 billion. From 2015, the government closed the 2018 fiscal year on a massive spending spree due in part to funding increases after a delayed budget agreement, and early fiscal 2019 spending data indicates the government isn't slowing down its contract spending. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, winding our way through some of the news headlines of the last, well, about a week. We'll be back in just a few moments.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to hear from Dr. Ben Witherington III. He's the author of Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. Really a fascinating uh, novella that's what they're calling it. Well, Michigan Representative Justin Amash announced his exit from the Republican Party in an op-ed he published on Thursday in the Washington Post. Amash's split from the party actually occurred some time ago, but it comes after he faced intense criticism for becoming the first and only Republican to declare that Robert Mueller's report into Russian interference in the 2016 election shows that President Trump is engaged in impeachable conduct. He is not returning to Congress, so it cost him little to make the pronouncement at this uh, particular time. President Donald Trump is exploring using an executive order to move forward with the battle over the 2020 census question. While the White House may be discussing the potential of an executive order, it's not clear how much that will factor into the rationale the Department of Justice lawyers are preparing to bring before the Maryland District Judge Uh, The Friday deadline and a federal appeals court in San Francisco on Wednesday blocked the president's plan to shift two point five billion dollars from the military budget to erect a border wall, finding by a two to one vote that the administrative administration rather violated federal law by diverting funds. Congress had appropriated for other purposes and presidential uh, hopeful Cory Booker was in um, Cuidad, Juarez, Mexico on Wednesday, traveled with asylum seekers as they crossed the U.S. southern border. Uh, Booker helped five women make it to a U.S. shelter and not a detention center, according to uh, Andrew Kimmel. Those women were originally sent back to Mexico under the migrant protection protocols, and Booker told reporters Wednesday that his office intends to keep in touch with them. Uh, it's, again, an unlawful act, uh, not clear whether or not they're sanctioned. Representative um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Wednesday released a plan to address the increasing numbers of migrants crossing the southern border, calling, among the other things, for decriminalization of illegal border crossing. And payroll growth rebounded sharply in June as the U.S. economy added 224,000 jobs, the best gain since January, and running contrary to uh, worries that both the employment picture and overall growth picture were beginning to weaken. The unemployment rate edged uh, up to 3.7 percent as labor force participation rose, according to the Labor Department. And on Wednesday, in the wake of the violence that erupted in Portland last Saturday – or Two Saturdays ago, in which journalist Andy Ngo was assaulted by masked members of the far left group Antifa, police chief Danielle Outlaw called for anti-mask laws, asserting we cannot allow people to continue to use the guise of free speech to commit a crime. A lot of people are emboldened because they know they can't be identified. Well, when police officers are present on the scene. The masks are irrelevant. They should be arrested, whether or not they're wearing them. But that's another story for another day. The Daily Caller reports that Kamala Harris introduced a $100 billion plan to help black people buy homes. The program would provide up to $25,000 in the form of grants from the Department of Housing and Urban Development to help pay down payments or closing costs. The grant would help grants rather would help. An estimated four million individuals or families who make up to one hundred thousand dollars or one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars, respectively, and are looking to rent or buy homes in high cost areas. The timing is certainly calculated as Harris's second quarter fundraising was a relatively lackluster twelve million dollars. It's easy to introduce a thing. It's more difficult to make the case. And actually, pass them into law. Former Vice President Joe Biden on Saturday apologized for recent comments about working with segregationist senators in his early days in the U.S. Senate, saying he understands now his remarks could have been offensive to some. Meanwhile, um, the Biden uh, Biden faced a mockery Friday for claiming that Russia wouldn't dare undo elections on his watch. Republican House Whip Steve Scalise retorted, "Russian interference in America's elections happened on Obama Biden's watch." That's irrefutable. And the Trump administration's top official at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services said immigration authorities are ready to identify, detain and eventually deport approximately one million undocumented immigrants with pending removal orders. That means the final order from a judge saying that they are no longer to be permitted in the country. And the Justice Department is shifting matters involving efforts to include a citizenship question on the 2020 census. To a new team of lawyers, so this is despite the fact the president is looking at an executive order. On Friday, the Department of Justice lawyers told a federal judge that the Trump administration is re- reviewing all available options for adding the question. And again, the president also announced that he's considering that executive order to include the question. A Starbucks employee in Tempe, Arizona, caused a national stir after being extraordinarily disrespectful to some police officers on Independence Day. On Sunday, the company issued an apology after meeting with Tempe chief of police Sylvia Moir. It is refreshing and a little surprising to see them issue an emphatic apology in this case. There were about six officers in a Starbucks uh, sitting, sipping their coffee. Another patron approached uh, an employee saying they felt uncomfortable having the police present. The employee asked the police officers to leave. They did. Billionaire Jeffrey Epstein uh, Epstein. Uh, has been charged with sex trafficking underage girls in New York and Florida. The new charges accuse him of trafficking minors between 2002 and 2005 by paying them cash for massages and abusing them sexually. In his New York apartment and his Palm Beach residence, Epstein, who is friends with President Trump, a former President Bill Clinton, avoided federal criminal charges in 2007 and 2008 after agreeing to a plea deal in which he pled guilty to states charges of soliciting prostitution and serving 13 months in a Florida county and registered as a sex offender. He faces the possibility of up to 45 years in prison with these charges. Well, after the United States won the Women's World Cup by beating Netherlands 2-0 to on Sunday's final match, a group of American soccer fans in France chanted an expletive about the president on live television, the broadcast, as well as uh, chanting for them to be given equal pay. And a new report by the United Nations Human Rights Watchdog paints an unpleasant picture of repression and economic collapse in Venezuela. President Nicolas Maduro's government, it says, punishes dissidents with arbitrary arrests, torture, and even murder. An ABC News Washington Post poll has Trump at uh, a new high for approval, 47 percent among registered voters. From the story, bolstered by a strong economy, Donald Trump reached the highest job approval rating of his career in the last ABC News Washington Post poll and runs competitively for re-election against four of five possible Democratic contenders. Yet he remains broadly unpopular across personal and professional measures, marking the his vulnerabilities in the 2020 election. Guy Benson says this, some hopeful data for, the, for uh, Trump in a new Washington Post-ABC poll. Among reg flags is early intensity gap. Trump's difficult task will be firing up and turning out existing supporters with a sense of urgency while winning over dubious persuadables. Left some um, uh, leftist overreach may be an asset on that front. And after they issued a scathing statement complaining about the spending measure, Nancy Pelosi said, "All these people have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they don't. They didn't have any following. They're four people, and that's how many votes they they've got." Four. Uh, Pelosi made comments that sparked a feud between Omar, Talib, and a- uh, AOC, and. Presley, Robert Costa, in response, says, although Pelosi maintains that she is aggressively confronting Trump on immigration and other fronts, there's widespread anger among liberals about the uh, uh, the president and growing calls for Pelosi to resist working with the administration and begin impeachment proceedings. Now, Pelosi has a different job than uh, members of Congress. Their job is to represent their districts. Pelosi is to uh, deliver a win in the House for... Democrats moving forward. So it's um, an interesting uh, challenge that she faces. Uh, The party within uh, those in the House who want to be reelected are concerned about overreach. Those outside the party are concerned about not confronting the president as they um, would like. Billionaire Tom Steyer. May join the Democratic field. He'd be number 26. Well, that's actually 25 now since we've had one dropout. After 20 candidate d- debates, Steyer is apparently only uh, the only Democrat in America who thought this field is too small and may actually step in. And Hong Kong is seeing another massive protest continue. The story notes that huge crowds of anti-government protesters took to the streets in Hong Kong again on Sunday in a first major action following a violent break-in. Uh, into Hong Kong's Legislative Council last week. And a representative, Veronica Escobar, took over Beto's seat from the story. A Democratic congresswoman is sending staff to Mexico's northern border town of Cuidad, Juarez, where one of the presidential candidates uh, uh, just left, to find migrants return to El Paso, Texas, under the Remain in Mexico policy, then coaching them to pretend they cannot speak English, to exploit a loophole letting them uh, return to the United States. Hmm. And California is bracing for more possible earthquakes. Seismologist um, Hauksen now warns that at least uh, there's a 3% chance of another quake of magnitude 7 over the next week, with at least one more of about uh, magnitude 6 being expected. He also warned that it could create so many smaller quakes, there could be as many as 30,000 of uh, magnitude 1 or greater over the next six months. The science behind the, uh, the quakes is a rather interesting study as well. While the world, of course, held its breath in anticipation as President Trump met the Chinese President Xi Jinping on the 28th of June on the sidelines of the Group of 20 Leaders Summit in Osaka, Japan, the outcome of their meeting was mostly unsurprising, despite conferring for almost an hour. By the end, the two agreed to resume negotiations toward ending the U.S.-China trade war. Not unexpected. Trump agreed to hold off on levying new tariffs on $300 billion worth of goods Americans buy from China, according to the president they also discussed chinese purchases of us agricultural projects products rather and student exchanges markets responded accordingly to the positive meeting. However, the president also made some vague comments regarding allowing US companies to continue selling products to Huawei Technologies company, a Chinese telecommunications giant and US national security concern that's unsettled the national security community. While we're still missing a lot of the details from what it was actually agreed upon during the Trump G meeting, the outcome was essentially uh, what uh, many predicted the same day as the uh, meeting itself, namely that they would agree to another trade war truth, which of course they have now done thirty minutes after four o'clock is our time you're listening to the georgine rice show we 'll be back in just a few moments.
1: you're listening to the georgine Rice show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine k p d q
2: Thirty-five minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, in the next hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Ben Witherington III. He's the author of Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. It's a fascinating novella that puts um, the life of Priscilla, wife of Aquila, in its historic context and uh, covers the sweep of her life, first coming to faith, the ministry that she and Aquila were engaged in uh, with the Apostle Paul, just a fascinating, uh, fascinating book. So... That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the Internal Revenue Service seized $446,000 from the bank accounts of brothers Jeffrey, Richard, and Mitch Hirsch back in 2012, claiming a structuring violation against the owners of Bi-County Distributors, Inc. for making multiple bank deposits of less than $10,000. Now, the government never charged them with a crime. They didn't give them a hearing to enable them to contest the seizure, but after... National uh, media intense attention uh, to the case. The government returned the funds. Well, the case was among many that highlighted an abuse by IRS agents known as legal source structuring that allowed the tax collection agency to use a law, the Bank Secrecy Act, intended to combat money laundering to seize assets. Now, again, no crime was ever uh, alleged in this case, and yet their assets were seized. Now, the case was among many that highlight this abuse. Um, by IRS agents uh, known as uh, this legal source structuring that allowed the tax collection agency to use that law Um, That was intended for other purposes. Well, the president signed a bipartisan bill on Monday to force greater accountability on the IRS in the property seizures, as well as protect taxpayers from identity theft, boost whistleblower protections and modernize the tax agency as much as I suppose it can be. We just finished uh, signing the important signing of the taxpayer first bill, the IRS taxpayer first which is a tremendous thing for our citizens having to deal with the IRS. He told reporters after the signing, it streamlines and so many other changes are made. Well, the new law, the Taxpayer First Act, requires the IRS to show probable cause that the smaller transactions were made in order to evade financial reporting requirements. Now, legal sources structuring laws uh, kick in when large financial trax- transactions rather, are broken up into smaller transactions, which spark suspicion from the IRS. And in the past, they could just act... Assuming that there was a nefarious purpose behind it, now they have to um, demonstrate probable cause. Well, if dividing up transactions is done with the intent to evade banking reporting requirements, it's illegal and the IRS can then seize the assets. Well, a 2017 audit by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration found no evidence of underlying crimes in 91% of the structuring cases examined in that sampling. So... It was an overreach apparently quite consistent within the Internal Revenue Service. The Inspector General's report further noted that the IRS frequently ignored reasonable explanations that business owners... Uh, have for the deposits. Now, the presumption apparently was guilt rather than innocence. Well, the IRS used the power in 2,500 cases between 2005 and 2012, gobbling up some $242 million in assets, according to the Institute for Justice, which is a public interest legal group. Of those, one-third involved uh, only allegations of structuring and not other alleged wrongdoing. Well, the provision of the Taxpayer First Act Codifies rules the IRS had already made in response to public pressure, but unlike laws, regulations can be overturned administratively. This uh, establishes in law protections for uh, taxpayers and the presumption of innocence requiring that the IRS come up with probable cause. Well, the U.S. economy has grown for 121 consecutive months following the Great Recession, marking the longest economic expansion in American history. The economy has been on a growth spurt since June of 2009 and now surpasses the previous record expansion set between March of 91 and March of 2001 before the dot-com bubble burst. Well, the decade-long expansion has been fueled by job growth, record low unemployment rates, and low interest rates. There were 21.4 million jobs created during the expansion after a loss of some 9 million during that recession. In another positive sign, wage increases over the last three years have been healthiest among the lowest paid workers, showing a narrowing of the wage gap between high and low earners. In May, average pay for the poorest one-quarter of workers surged 4.4 percent. From a year earlier, that's uh, compared to 3.2% average increase for the richest quarter of workers, according to data compiled by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The wealth gap also shrank as the proportion of income going to the poorest one-fifth of Americans rose From 6.4% in 2007 to 7.3% in 2015, the last year for which the data is available. The wealthiest one-fifth share of income declined from 51% to 48% over that same period, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Overall, household wealth, which includes home values, stock portfolios, bank accounts minus mortgages and credit card debt, spiked 80%. Over the last decade. Well, as I mentioned earlier, California Representative Eric Swalwell on Monday dropped out of the race for his party's presidential nomination, becoming the first of what's expected to be many Democrats uh, to give up their presidential aspirations as the crowded field winnows down with the singular possibility of one adding to that number. Swalwell, who is uh, Uh, In recent polls, failed to garner enough um, percent uh, percentage of voters among primary and caucus voters, said he was abandoning his presidential run in favor of focusing on getting reelected to the House of Representatives. Being honest with ourselves, we had to look at how much money we were raising and where we were in the polls, Swalwell said during a news conference at Union Hall in Dublin, California. We have to be honest about our candidacy. He added, today ends our presidential campaign, but it is the beginning of a new opportunity in Congress. Swalwell didn't uh, endorse any of his former primary rivals, saying only that he is impressed with the experience of the field. If Megan um, Rapinoe gets in the race, I'll probably endorse her, Swalwell said jokingly in reference to the U.S. Women's National Team soccer star. Well, Swalwell, um, who launched his campaign for the presidency just three months ago, focused much of his efforts on combating gun violence. He supported a ban on assault rifles and starting a mandatory buyback program Keeping your pistols, keeping your rifles, keep your shotguns, he said in the debate stage last month, but uh, we can take the most dangerous weapons from the most dangerous people. He had a standout moment during the Democrats' first debates when the 38-year-old lawmaker recalled being only six years old when he saw frontrunner Joe Biden speak, saying the former senator and vice president was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. And in a second breach of the 2015 nuclear agreement it signed with world powers, stands the United States, Iran on Sunday said it will raise its enrichment of uranium and has already done so. Iran will go beyond the limit of 3.67% enrichment and the new percentage based on our needs. According to a government spokesperson at a news conference, uh, the announcement was expected to further heighten tensions between Tehran and the United States. The move comes one year after the president announced that the U.S. would leave the accord that the Obama administration and other governments had entered into with Iran's leadership. On Saturday, French President Emmanuel Macron, he told his Iranian counterpart by phone that he was trying to find a way to resume dialogue between Iran and Western partners by the 15th of July. Previously, Iran admitted breaking the deal's 661-pound limit on its low-enriched uranium stockpile. Experts warn that higher enrichment and a growing stockpile of uranium would make an atomic bomb possible sooner for Iran. Most predictions say it would take about a year. The 2015 deal's proponents say the accord was designed to prevent Iran from developing a bomb, which Iran has claimed it wasn't interested in building anyway. Well, Prior to Sunday's announcement, Iran had warned Europe that it would begin pulling away from the deal in response to sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, hoping that Europe would put pressure on the U.S. And uh, the um, sanctions have certainly put pressure on Iran's economy and its top officials. Tehran is hoping that Accord, signees Russia, China and Europe can help provide relief from the sanctions. The Wall Street Journal reported. Well, here at home, of course, the Oregon legislature adjourned last Sunday, pushing through a mountain of bills over the final weekend, despite simmering partisan bitterness and the return of a Republican senator who threatened state police and the Senate president. Well, frustrations stemming from one of the most contentious sessions in recent memory also spilled into the open during a shouting match between two Senate colleagues from either side of the aisle. Among several dozen bills the legislature passed in the final hours were some of Democrats' priorities for 2019, including legislation that would create a paid family and medical leave program, add campaign finance regulations, seek to increase the supply and availability of affordable housing, refer a, a, a A hike on tobacco tax to voters and raise Oregon's earned income tax credit. A handful of remaining state agency budget bills also passed as lawmakers rushed to finish their work by a midnight constitutional deadline, which, of course, they did far earlier than anticipated. The Senate completed its business around 4.55 p.m. The House about 5.25. They had um, hours to spare. The day was far from straightforward, but they got their jobs done. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this legislative session, as I mentioned, was rather contentious. And one of the key uh, players in all of that was Oregon Senator Brian Boquist, uh, most uh, notably, uh, had uh, threatened whether or not it was a real threat, uh, had threatened some members of the uh, Capitol Police and members of the legislature. Well, the decision has been made that uh, he's going to have to notify the legislature 12 hours before he plans to be at the Capitol so that officials can arrange for additional state troopers to ensure the safety of employees and the public. They took that uh, offhand statement rather seriously. Well, the Legislative Committee issued that decision after lengthy deliberations uh, on Monday in response to his threats last month against the uh, Senate President Peter Courtney and state troopers. Boquist, a Dallas Republican, made the statement after the governor hinted that she would consider sending state police to round up Republicans if they walked out of the Capitol to kill a sweeping climate change bill. Well, on the 19th of last month, in a floor speech, Boquist told Courtney, if you send the state police to get me expletive, is coming to um, uh, visit you personally. Uh, Later that same day, he suggested in an interview captured by KGW television that he would shoot and potentially kill any state police sent by the governor and Senate president to bring him back to the Capitol. Now, these days, those kinds of comments, regardless of your stature uh, or your status, are taken very seriously. Well, Travis, um, Superintendent Travis Hampton said, this is what I told the superintendent Boquist said, referring to. Uh, the superintendent, send um, bachelors and come heavily armed. I'm not going to be a political prisoner in the state of Oregon. It's just that simple. Well, Oregon Republican senators who uh, made the threat warned them to come heavily armed. It was taken seriously, and now uh, they are requiring that – He uh, report 12 hours before approaching the Capitol before being admitted. An outside lawyer hired by the legislature to handle workplace issues determined that Boquist's statements constitute a credible threat of violence directed at the Senate president and Oregon state police. And also found that the threats violated the legislature's rule against workplace harassment and suggested the legislature bar Boquist from returning to the Capitol until an investigation was complete. The customary and best practice is to not allow the person who has threatened violence to return to the workplace until the employer can ensure that employees are safe and the threats will not be carried out or to incite others to violence. He did return to the legislature. Uh, One of the members who felt particularly threatened exited and the two of them were not present in the chamber at the same time. Uh, But he did arrive uh, on Saturday and was involved in voting, at least most of it. Meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown isn't giving up on cap and trade. She's directed her staff to explore executive power as means to establish the controversial climate change policy. Brown's announcement uh, came in the wake of House Bill 2020's failure in the Oregon legislature that ended its 2019 session on Sunday last. Well, the bill would have set a cap on greenhouse gases across major industries in the state, established pollution allowances, uh, which companies would be able to trade. The cap would drop over time in an attempt to curb global warming. California remains the only state with an economy wide cap and trade policy. Opponents argued, and I think rightly so, that it would drain the economy with very little benefit. The climate legislation was derailed after Republicans in the Oregon Senate walked out, stayed away from Salem for more than a week in the waning days of the session, returning for a couple final days only after it was clear that House Bill 2020 was dead. Well, uh, Governor Brown resurrected the issue, saying my goal for the next few months is to present proposed modifications to the legislation that still achieves the state's greenhouse gas reduction goals at the least possible cost while continuing to grow the economy. That's a tall order, taller than she seems to appreciate. Uh, at a press conference in Salem, she said she's directing the state carbon policy office to work with manufacturers in rural Oregon to analyze their costs and competition, searching for ways to keep jobs while reducing carbon Output, And as hundreds of new laws come out of each session of the Oregon legislature, it can't be hard to – or rather, it can be hard to keep track of all of them. Many don't have a direct impact on Oregonians' day-to-day lives. A few of them, for example, House Bill 2509, bans stores and restaurants from providing single-use plastic bags at checkout and requires them to charge at least five cents per bag if they provide paper or other alternatives beginning in 2020. Keep in mind, this is all stores and restaurants. Senate Bill 90 prohibits restaurants from giving customers single-use plastic straws unless the customer specifically requests one effective immediately. You want a straw? You got to ask for it. Senate Bill 320 would allow Oregon to stay on daylight saving time year-round, but only if the federal government passes a law that would allow the switch. And Washington and California also agreed to the switch. The bill would exempt the silver or rather, the sliver of Eastern Oregon that operates on Mountain Time. Then there was House Bill 2393. It strengthens Oregon's revenge pornography laws by making it a crime to distribute intimate photos or videos of a person without their consent. Previously, the law only covered posting such content to a website, but now includes other methods of electronic dissemination, such as text messages, emails, and apps. It allows victims to sue. Uh, for up to $5,000 in damages. House Bill 2328 will make it easier for police to put car thieves behind bars. A 2014 court decision meant that prosecutors have had to prove that a person had knowledge the vehicle they were driving was stolen. Now they merely have to show that the person um, disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the vehicle might be stolen. In other words, you can steal a car, the police pull you over, and you say, I didn't know it was stolen and you are pretty much off the hook. Senate Bill 3 allows community colleges to offer four-year bachelor's degrees. Colleges would have to gain approval for each program through the Higher Education Coordinating Committee by showing that the program would address a workforce need not being met. And Senate Bill 9 allows pharmacists to prescribe emergency refills of insulin and related supplies instead of requiring patients who run out of Uh, out of it to wait for their doctor's office to open to get the new prescription. That can save uh, uh, some difficulties for those with diabetes. Senate Bill 870 adds Oregon to the National Popular Vote Compact. States belonging to that compact agree to award their electoral college votes to the winner of the national popular vote instead of the winner of their state. The compact will take effect once states representing 270 electoral college votes join. Oregon brings that total to 196. This is uh, overriding the Electoral College. House Bill 3216 allows people to sue anyone who summons a police officer as a way of discriminating against someone, cause them to feel harassed or embarrassed, infringe on the person's rights or expel them from a place where they are lawfully located. A little bit uh, nebulous, but nonetheless, that's what it uh, is designed to do. Then there's the Student Success Act. That will bring at least $1 billion in funding to Oregon's public schools through a business tax, but it didn't pass without drama. Senate Republicans staged a walkout in May. Didn't return to the Capitol until the Democrats agreed to scrap bills on gun control, vaccines in exchange for their votes. Educators cheered the funding boost, which they say is Sorely needed to combat years of cuts that have forced schools to slash staff and programs like arts, music and P.E. Uh, There's Senate Bill 608. Oregon became the first state nationwide to ditch single family zoning in cities with more than 10,000 residents by allowing duplexes to be built on land previously zoned for single family homes. It'll also uh, allow for cities uh, with more than 25,000 residents to allow for triplexes, fourplexes, and cottage clusters on similarly designated land. House Bill 2015 would allow undocumented immigrants uh, the uh, opportunity to obtain non-commercial driver's licenses without having to prove legal residency through the Equal Access to Roads Act. They'll still be required to pass a driving test and prove they live in the state. Supporters of the bill say it will lead to fewer hit-and-run and uninsured driving accidents. House Bill 2005, uh, this bill would allow all workers who earn more than $1,000 per year to receive up to 12 weeks of paid leave for family and medical reasons. Employers and workers would begin paying into the fund in 2022, and some small businesses are exempt. Senate Bill 861 uh, would uh, provide for paid postage for mail-in ballots Oregon is joining neighboring mail-in ballot states like California and Washington and offering paid postage for ballots. The bill will cost $1.7 million, will take effect during the 2020 general election. Voters will decide in 2020 whether they want to increase costs of cigarettes by $2 a pack and tax e-cigarettes and other vaping products at 65% of the wholesale price. The funds from this tax would bridge the funding gap for the state's Medicaid program. And those who seek expungement will no longer have to pay a fee. They'll also won't have to provide fingerprints or undergo a background check. And finally, Senate Bill 998. This law allows bicyclists to treat a stop sign or flashing red light like a yield sign and a red light as a stop sign. What could possibly go wrong with that? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Glad to have you with us. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we're going to talk with Dr. Ben Witherington III. He is the author of Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. It's a fascinating novella putting into context this name that we read about in the book of Acts, uh, this partnership with she and Aquila and the Apostle Paul. Um, putting flesh and context and history around the story and helping us, I think, better understand the events that occurred in the early church as well. So we'll talk with uh, Dr. Witherington when he joins us a bit uh, later in today's program. We've been talking about the Oregon legislature and some of the things that uh, will be changing as a consequence of laws they have passed. Uh, among them, there are some changes coming to K-12 through schools after the uh, legislative session. Uh, Schools can count on some extra funding, as I mentioned just before the uh, top of the hour break, as well as advances in high-profile issues like mental health resources, district accountability, keeping class sizes low, and that's um, as a result of bills that were approved by the state legislature. Uh, The session uh, was marked with delays, political standoffs, a flurry of votes in the last day. Uh, But in the end, they uh, approved a total of nine billion dollars. That's with a B for K through 12 schools this year up from uh, by about 10 percent from the last legislative session of eight point two billion dollars. The increased funding is projected to have some impact, major impact and bring some significant changes to the K through 12 schools. Now, among the changes are these four increased support for mental health. There were some major strides made toward upping mental health supports in schools, such as increasing staff member staff numbers, rather, adding new policy mandates. Some resources were part of larger budget uh, bills like the Student Success Act and others were pulled out of uh, in bills of their own. But regardless of where they fell, prioritizing students' mental health got a big push this year for lawmakers. Senate Bill 52, or Addies Act. Mandates that school districts adopt a policy putting in place a comprehensive plan on student suicide prevention for grades K through 12. It's sad that such a thing is even necessary, but these days it is. The plan has... Uh, has to include prevention, intervention, and activities that reduce risk, promote healing after a suicide of a colleague or a classmate, along with procedures for reporting, accessing materials, and training for staff. It sailed through the House, and the Senate, was uh, with unanimous bipartisan approval, it was signed by the governor back in May. Students can come to school with a variety of needs, whether it's counseling for trauma or any number of things family problems, poverty, other hardships or difficulties, and the school is uh, presumably prepared to deal with that. Representative Cedric Hayden out of uh, Roseburg was the sponsor of that suicide prevention bill, saying sometimes the dialogue about teen violence gets stuck on teens and gun violence, but in Oregon there are more kids who end their lives too early with overdose and asphyxiation than they do with guns. These are silent killers of our kids, and that passed in the legislature. Lawmakers also passed uh, House Bill 2191 this session, which expands the definition of sickness to include mental and behavioral health when it comes to excused absence from school. If a student uh, misses classes for mental health reasons the same as they do for, say, a fever, the student won't be penalized. It wasn't unanimous. 11 Republicans, one Democrat voted against it, but was still signed by the governor. There's also a uh, provision uh, coming up uh, that would address disrupted learning. Mental health supporters uh, do go hand in hand with addressing disrupted learning. That's what they call it when students act out in class. That issue stood alone in Senate Bill 963 this session. It amended and, and clearly defined a previous law about how school staff are allowed to restrain or seclude disruptive children when the rest of the class Uh, uh, safety is in question, there was some gray area or or uncertainty about that. And you may have followed the series on violence in the classroom uh, earlier this year. Well, the bill is in response to that growing issue of when students um, will become disruptive or sometimes violent and school staff have to help the child work through the issues while also taking care of the rest of the class. Disrupted learning, again, as they refer to it, often leads to uh, room clears where everybody leaves the room where the rest of the class um, it has to vacate while the disrupting student can be calmed down and taken out of the class. Also, significant changes for mandatory reporting and investigations of suspected sexual abuse in schools came in the form of Senate Bill 155 with the extended Republican walkout. The bill was at risk of uh, dying on the Senate floor, but was approved and passed um, uh, to the House on the uh, penultimate day of the session. So that did pass and uh, will be law in the state of Oregon. The bill comprehensively outlines how schools can report and investigate suspected sexual uh, conduct or misconduct by an employee or volunteer toward a student and outlines clear procedures for mandatory reporting. Um, There's more funding for overall operations. The uh, legislature approved a $2 billion for school over the next biennium in House Bill 3427, also known as the Student Success Act, That will presumably help uh, educators uh, with some of the miscellany that is required to uh, teach well. There's also a new law that uh, this is not with regard to education, but Oregon has a law that many of us were very concerned about and opposed that would ensure medical decisions can be made for adults with developmental disabilities by disinterested parties or, for that matter, interested parties who may under some circumstances, benefit from an individual's death. Well, the new law, unanimously approved during the uh, combative uh, session, uh, will keep in place the state's process for delegating medical decisions for hundreds of adults with developmental disabilities. The legislation came in response to an investigation by the Oregonian that revealed deep flaws within the state system for appointing medical decision makers, including the case of a man diagnosed with a tumor who didn't immediately see a cancer specialist. The legislation presumably fixes one glaring problem for state bureaucrats. Until now, no law gave the state explicit authority to use its long-established system to guide medical decisions for some adults with developmental disabilities. The bill was signed, Senate Bill 1039, into law uh, late last month. Well, Oregonians, um, say goodbye to your Washington sales tax break, at least Uh, As you've come to know it, gone are the days of showing an Oregon ID at a Washington Register and getting an automatic pass on sales tax. Oregonians who shop in Washington have to save their receipts if they want to uh, get reimbursed later. Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed the measure into law in May and it went into effect the 1st of July. Washington leaders project the change will raise some $54 million dollars. Their general fund over the next two years, but some business owners in Southwest Washington fear the revenue comes at their expense. Their concern and their confusion can be summed up in um, tractors and teak. That's how they put it. Skip Ogden owns Dan's Tractors outside Battleground. He's been at the uh, at it for decades. He says he's uh, learned something about the Oregon customer. They hate paying sales tax. They walk in the door. They want some uh, filters. You ring it up, you tell them how much, and they say, oh, I'm from Oregon, no tax, uh, he said. Uh, They um, then re-ring it with the uh, taxes deducted. In the days uh, leading up to the July 1st, uh, Ogden worried that he checked his records. 20% of his business last year came from Oregon customers, more than $1 million in gross revenue. If his uh, customers don't want to pay sales tax on an inexpensive filter, Uh, Why would they drive all the way across the river, pay a 7.7% sales tax on a $30,000 tractor with a front loader? They like his service, but Oregonians don't have to pay sales tax at home. So he's concerned, as are others, that this may um, take a bite out of his uh, customer base, and that remains to be seen. But for Oregonians making purchases in Washington, the heyday of no sales tax have come to an end. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Ben Witherington. He's the author of Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I have to say I've been looking forward to this portion of today's program because I have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Ben Witherington III, the author of Priscilla, the Life of an Early Christian. It is a fascinating book. Well, readers of the Bible may know her as the wife of Aquila, Paul's co-worker or someone who explained baptism to Apollos. Well, biblical references to Priscilla spark questions. Why is she mentioned before her husband? Culturally, that wasn't done. Does the mention of her instruction of Apollos mean that women taught in the church? What is her story? Well, my next guest, he addresses these questions and much more in his work of historical fiction. Priscilla looks back on her long life and remembers the ways she participated in the early church. Her journey was taken, um, rather had taken her to Ephesus and Corinth, to Rome. And she's partnered with Paul and others along the way. Her story makes the first century world come alive and helps readers like you and me connect the events and correspondence in different New Testament books. Uh, Dr. Witherington combines biblical scholarship and winsome storytelling to give us a vivid picture of an important New Testament woman. She wasn't the only one, but it is a helpful reminder that there were women who played a significant role in these early days of the church. Uh, my guest is, uh, again, a, f- a fascinating uh, writer and storyteller. Dr. Witherington um, is a prominent evangelical scholar and Jean R. Amos Professor of New Testament for Doctoral Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. Dr. Witherington has written over 40 books, including The Jesus Quest and The Paul Quest, both of which were selected as top biblical studies works by Christianity Today. His other works include The Indelible Image, Women, and the Genesis of Christianity, The Gospel Code, A Week in the Life of Corinth, and commentaries on the entire New Testament. He also writes for many church and scholarly publications and is a frequent contributor to Patheos and BeliefNet. We are fortunate to have him with us today by phone to talk about his uh, his latest book, Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. Dr. Ben Witherington, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: My pleasure. Good to be with you.
2: This is really a fascinating book. I, I suppose you would refer to it as a novella telling the story of a name we read in Scripture but know very little about. Give us a little bit of the background that sparked your imagination to put flesh and uh, history and context to this um, this woman in Scripture?
0: Well, a very long time ago, B.C., before cell phone, I did my <laughs> doctoral dissertation in England on women in the New Testament. And uh, it it ended up turning into three books, Women in the Ministry of Jesus, Women in the Earliest Churches, and then finally Women in the Genesis of Christianity. And uh, I realized at that point there was a sort of gap or lacuna in scholarly studies these things hadn't been looked at in mm-hmm. detail in a sort of comprehensive cultural way. I mean a lot of those texts have been preached on and taught about over and over again uh, without an understanding of the historical context. So my concern with this particular novella about Priscilla was to fill in the foreground by filling in the background in essence. And, uh, and showing what was likely the case in her life um, from the historical and larger context. You know, Paul has gotten a really bad rap as someone who was opposed to women teaching and preaching and doing various kind of ministerial roles, which is far from the truth if you really examine the New Testament evidence. But, uh, but in any case, I, I thought, you know, there's enough... Meat on the bone of what is said about Priscilla in Paul's letters and in Acts to fill out the profile of of what was actually going on and there aren't there aren't that many women in the New Testament that you could do that mm-hmm. with, but you can do it with her and probably with Joanna as well um, so that's what I decided to do i I did an English literature degree at Carolina back at the dawn of time when the Earth was still cooling <laughs> in the early 70s. And I finally decided, look, I'm going to use my English literature skills to start writing some uh, novels and novellas. And, and I have. I've written seven archaeological thrillers, and, and I've written several uh, novellas for University, um, um, for which this is, is one of them. In fact, the uh, novellas for intervarsity started um, in uh, a hot dog stand called the Varsity in downtown Atlanta. When Dan Reed, my editor, and I said, and I said, Dan, look, the truth of the matter is that not too many educated lay people are going to read stuffy monographs about this, that, and the other, um, and and scholarly stuff where you're throwing around six and seven languages is going to be too much. I said, why not? try to squeeze some theology and history into people sideways through some pleasant fiction. And he thought, well, sounds like an idea. So we launched the Week in the Life series with the Week in the Life of Corinth, and it's gone through like eight editions. It just sort of blew up, and uh, and it's done very, very well. And that kind of started that whole process with with InterVarsity. And and the way I like to do it is – not just tell the story, but also give people a closer look at the cultural yes. context as well. I like to say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. And, and unfortunately, m- women have been consistently misrepresented by stripping certain isolated verses out of context and uh, saying things that ought not to have been said about women in their roles.
2: Well, I, I so appreciate that you do provide the context. You begin when Priscilla is reminiscing. She is an older woman at the beginning of the book, reflecting back to Julia the events of her life. And it begins with uh, with Nero and the burning of, of Rome while he's fiddling. And just it was the first time I had thought about what it would have been like to to be there at the time this was occurring. And it, it, I felt like I was living in that moment for the first time. And I'm familiar with the Scripture, and I know what happened, and I know the historic events and so on. But I appreciated the way that you um, were, as one of your um, uh, reviewers put it, historically sensitive uh, and imaginative, both at the same time. So it helped me to better understand the events surrounding her life, and certainly in the early church as well.
0: Yeah, and, and here's the thing. You get a sense of how fragile and vulnerable early Christianity as a tiny, tiny religious movement was at that point in time. I mean, Aquila and Priscilla had already been sent into exile by Claudius uh, because of squabbles with the synagogue over Jesus. That's told, the story is told at the beginning of Acts 18. And so them being back in Rome... (laughs) When Paul writes Romans, because Paul greets them in Romans 16 and about A.D. 57, and they're still in Rome after that as well. Well, they were vulnerable, and they knew they were vulnerable, but yet they did ministry anyway. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, these were really brave people. And one of the things that really um, encourages me is sometimes we, we worry about our own country and our own culture, and we think, oh, it's increasingly pluralistic, and Christianity is struggling, and lots of churches are in decline, and this, that, and the other. We are in a far easier and yes. better situation than Paul or Priscilla ever were in at all, because they weren't even part of illicit or, or legal religion. And so, you know, I wanted to tell the story in a way that framed it from somebody who actually had lived through all of this from Pentecost all the way up uh, into the 90s during the reign of Domitian and when there was another outbreak of persecution as well. And so that that was my, my vision of this. And I was very pleased with how it turned out. And I think, I mean, InterVarsity did a terrific job with the production of this book. i is visually yes. pleasing and and, and and nice to pick up and read. And it doesn't take long to do it either. You know, I, I think this is the other thing that I have learned, of course, in the infomercial age and in the technology age, people just don't read like they used to. They just stare at their computer screens and flip through their Facebook pages and this, that, and the other. So Shorter and pithy is more likely to get the message across than War and Peace by Tolstoy.
2: Even though it's still worth reading, I might just say. <laughs> you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And for people who find history dry and difficult, um, this is a way of looking at the context in which the early church began, and even slightly before, uh, to, to understand where the pieces fit together and who the rulers were and the impact they had on this emerging movement that was small and insignificant. And as you pointed out, it wasn't a legal um, religion. It was very costly. And it, I felt like, you know, I need to put my big girl pants on in the faith because these people really did face challenges that we couldn't even imagine, even though we're facing challenges of our own.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the thing is that if God could produce a movement throughout the Roman Empire, so that by the time you get to 325 in the Council of Nicaea, even the emperor is a Christian, and it becomes a legal religion. And, well, wow, you know, if that can happen in the first and second and third and fourth centuries with zero technology, I mean, think of where we stand and what our possibilities are in, in being people like Priscilla and Paul.
2: We're talking about the book. It's simply titled Priscilla. She is an incredible woman. The Life of an Early Christian is the subtitle of the book. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing a conversation. My guest is Dr. Ben Witherington. Uh, He is the author of Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. It is a a book that will, uh, will fascinate you as it tells the life of this early believer, this woman who was instrumental in the early church, and also give you a broader context of some of the challenges and events that took place that... Uh, will hold your attention. And let's just talk about who Priscilla is. I don't want to assume, because people don't read like they used to, that everyone knows who Priscilla was. What does the Scripture tell us? And then let's let's take that as a launching uh, into the, the details that your book provides to help us better understand her and the early church.
0: Well, let's talk about her social status first. Um, in most of the references to Priscilla and Aquila in the New Testament, they're, they're always mentioned together as a husband and wife. Um, but her name almost always comes first. So the question is why it could be because she had higher social status than her husband, but in a patriarchal culture and that culture was profoundly patriarchal. Mm -hmm. That's very unusual. I mean, she would have to be a high status woman, like a relative of Augustus or something for that to be the case. She's probably not that kind of person. So, the other reason would seem to be because she was the person most involved with and most recognized for the ministry that she and her husband did. The second thing to say about her is we know that they were part of a guild. That is, they were leather workers, right? And so that's actually how Paul came across them in Corinth after they'd been exiled from Rome in the probably the late 40s uh, A.D., um, he, he found them in Corinth, and because they shared a trade, they became friends, and possibly Paul even stayed with them when he was in Corinth. So uh, we know two things about them. Um, the third thing we know is, of course, that Priscilla and Aquila were Jews. Um, and as Jews, they were Jewish followers of, of Jesus, just like Paul was. And they happened to practice the same trade. So there was, you know, there was harmonic convergence of all these things with Paul. Uh, In addition, Paul was a Roman citizen, so he was in a position to take advantage of some of these social and cultural benefits. And uh, as I like to say, they together in Corinth practiced an intense ministry they kept making tents. <laughs> but but Corinth, I mean, Corinth is really an interesting case. It's a crossroads city. It's booming in the in the mid-50s. It's it's the sort of trade center of the middle of the empire, both going east and west, because it had ports on both sides of the isthmus. Um, and it, it had become the capital city of the province of Achaia, which is exceptional because that meant... Athens was no longer the capital city of the province of Achaia, even the, though the province was named after it. So this is a big-deal city, and it was also the place where the Ispian Games were played. Um, and like they were very much like the Olympic Games, but they were every two years. Now, this is a perfect place to do evangelism, because every two years, people are going to show up who want to go to the games. Where are they going to stay? Well, there's not any Holiday Inn Expresses, and you really don't want to stay in the tabernas or the taverns that are there. So, what are you going to do? You're going to rent a tent. You're going to camp out. It's like going to a music festival, and you're going to go see the games. Perfect opportunity for Paul and Priscilla and Aquila to reach out in the community and beyond the community with lots of transient people to create uh, an opportunity for Christianity to thrive in in one of the real growing cities in the empire. The other thing that's interesting about this is that Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila are urban people, and Paul had an urban strategy of ministry. If you look at the journeys of Paul in Acts or just read his letters, where is he really most successful? Well, in big urban settings. He spent a year and a half in Corinth, spent two and a half years in Ephesus, he had success in cities like Iconium and the city of Antioch and Philippi, all of which are Roman colony cities where he had a natural advantage as a Roman citizen. And guess what? Priscilla and Aquila were traveling with him and working in most of these places. So uh, it's a story of of the Pauline part of the movement, and it's a very exciting story.
2: I appreciated the fact that in your your book. Uh, that we're talking about, Priscilla, the life of an early Christian. She is looking back over the sweep of history, the start of the church, the role that she and others played. She makes reference to Peter and to Titus and John Mark and others, and looking back over the, the apostles as their lives had drawn to a close and their influence had reached its pinnacle. Um, how unusual would it have been for a woman like Priscilla to have traveled with Paul Uh, in a similar way that there were women who ministered to Jesus and the disciples as he traveled in his three-year ministry. Would this have been considered unusual, or because of her marriage uh, to Aquila and their status, would this have have been uh, just accepted as the norm?
0: Well, it would have been more unusual in in the Jewish setting, in Galilee and Judea. In the Greco-Roman world, women, especially high-status women, played a lot of different kind of roles— but still within a larger patriarchal framework, no question about that. I mean, there were no women emperors, right? Um, There were no women governors of Roman provinces. But still, they were able to play important and prominent roles. So there was more freedom of movement and freedom of opportunity. And one thing we know from just studying women in the Greco-Roman world, they were often highly involved in their religions. Uh, in some of those religions, like the cult of Art- Artemis in, in Ephesus, they could be high priestesses and play all kinds of religious roles. So, for a woman who grew up in the Greco-Roman world, there would be a natural expectation that they would be able to pray, play all kinds of religious roles in Christianity. I mean, why not? They they had in the Roman religion or the Greek religion. Why why would they not? And uh, so. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons that we see in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts, uh, women playing important roles along the way, is because culturally it was more wide open uh, in out, outside of the Holy Land for them to do so. And they had been doing so for centuries, as a matter of fact. So uh, that's part of the picture.
2: Yeah. Now, there's so much in the book that we don't have time to talk about, but let me ask you, aside from the fact that Priscilla is a prominent figure in the early church and the role that she plays in the ministry of Paul, what do you want us to learn about her and, by extension, the early church uh, by reading Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian?
0: Well, one of the most important things I can say is that roles in the physical family were one thing. Roles in the family of faith or in the church or another the basis for the roles in the church were not gender the basis for the roles in the church were who was called who was gifted whom the holy spirit prompted to do various things and, and that's why you see women playing all kinds of roles preaching teaching uh, you even have uh, andronicus and junia mentioned as notable apostles In Romans 16, you have the very first person called a deacon, in the whole New Testament is Phoebe, also in Romans 16. So the roles that women played in earliest Christianity were, were not determined by their gender. They were determined by who was called and who was gifted and who was graced to do certain kinds of roles. Now, when there was an intersection between physical family roles and the family of faith, Well, then sometimes that had to be negotiated in certain ways because the standing structure of the physical family was was patriarchal. No question about that. But what's remarkable is that despite that fact, um, it was possible for women to do all kinds of things in the Christian movement because the people understood that it was not about gender. It was about, nor was it about social status. It was about who was called and gifted to do what. And, and that is one of the main things I would hope people would take away from this novella.
2: Once again, the book is titled Priscilla, the Life of an Early Christian. I should mention there are beautiful illustrations that help us uh, understand and picture events that are uh, recounted by Priscilla as she speaks to um, her charge, Julia, in telling uh, the story. Just a fascinating book, and it makes me want to go back and, and rediscover some of your earlier works as well, so I intend to do that. Dr. Witherington, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today and for your book, Priscilla.
0: Well, you're, you're most like, uh, welcome, and I would simply say, read A Week in the Life of Corinth next. They will show up there as well.
2: I fully intend to do just that. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Again, the book is titled Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. InterVarsity Press is the publisher. And I would agree, reading the next one, which was already on my list of things to read after this one, is uh, the, A Day in the Life of Corinth. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment, uh, we'll take a quick break, uh, but we'll wrap things up. By the way, portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin & Currency.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, apologist Norman Geisler has passed away. He said he didn't have enough faith to be an atheist. In fact, he wrote a book about it. Just two months after his retirement from public ministry, the evangelical theologian Norman Geisler died. This was on Monday, uh, June the 30th. Um, He was 86 years old. He'd been hospitalized over the weekend after he suffered a blood clot in his brain. Described as a cross between Thomas Aquinas and Billy Graham, he was a prolific author. He was an apologist, a professor, as well as the co-founder and former president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in North Carolina he was also co-founder of Veritas International University in California while well, many evangelical leaders consider Geisler among the top Christian thinkers in recent decades with pastor Derwin Gray uh, calling him one of Christianity's greatest philosophers apologists and theologians and Colson Center president John Stone Street remembering him as a towering figure in Christian apologetics and philosophy no small compliment there. Well, Geisler was respected for the breadth and depth of his career of over 70 years and his model of defending the faith and the Bible through classical apologetics. Current uh, uh, SES president, and that is the, uh, one of the uh, universities or, or seminaries, rather, that he um, established. Uh, Richard Land describes him as a powerfully refreshing voice that inspired conservative scholars, ministers, and fellow apologists. For us, Dr. Geisler's latest defense of the faith was like a long drink of cold water in the midst of what was too often an arid and sterile theological landscape. He wrote, Dr. Geisler has been the go-to authority for more than two generations of evangelical seminary students who were looking for a bold, erudite, and uncompromisingly faithful defense of the inerrant, infallible Word of God and the historical doctrines of the Christian faith. Again, we're talking about Norman Geisler who has gone home to his reward. He was on the team of theologians that wrote the 1978 Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and co-wrote the popular book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, back in 2004. Norman Geisler was one of the four or five most influential people in my life, wrote Talbot Seminary Philosophy Professor J.P. Moreland, speaking to Christianity Today. He said it was meeting Norman and reading his works that first drew my interest to philosophy and the rest of history. Uh, he was a tireless worker for the kingdom and a brother who was faithful to the end. We have lost a giant and the world is worse off for his departure. Well, heaven certainly is richer for having uh, called him home. In addition to his scholarship and teaching, Geisler participated in theological debates with fellow scholars, including the 2011 dispute with Michael uh, Lacona around the resurrection, which was covered by Christianity Today. He is the author, co-author, or editor of 127 titles, including a book on transhumanism due out next year. His book, The Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, was named among the top religion reference books by living theologians in 2002. His works had been translated into more than a dozen languages, and online tributes are for spanning the globe from Kenya to Brazil. Brazilian theologian uh, Roni Kozer wrote, I often say that Geisler was a source from which I drank too much and praised God for his legacy. The Michigan-born scholar received degrees from Wheaton College, William Tyndale College, and Loyola University. William Roach, president of the International Society of Apologetics, which Geisler founded back in 2007, was uh, mentored by Geisler and shared details in a tribute um, back at the early part of the month. Both of us were raised in non-Christian homes. Our mothers would not allow us to play football as kids. We both had alcoholic parents, struggled significantly in school, and most importantly, after our conversion to Christ, we both had to face the objections to the Christian faith. Dr. Geisler used to say he got into apologetics because he was stumped by a drunk on the streets of Detroit, who claimed to be a graduate of Moody Institute Biblitude, Dr. Geisler uh, knew that he either had to find answers to people's objections or he must stop sharing his faith. Since the latter is not an option, Dr. Geisler dedicated his life to defending the historic Christian faith. I find it fascinating um, that he was someone who um, had grown up in a household that was not conducive to the Christian faith. And uh, for him to uh, develop his towering intellect and uh, skills and apologetics is quite remarkable and should be encouraging to those of us who struggle. Following the news of his passing, his ministry posted 1 Thessalonians four thirteen and 14, one of his favorite passages, to quote when he learned of a, a death in the body of Christ, "...but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who sleep, those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope." For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do believe that, and even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Geisler's memorial service was held in Charlotte, North Carolina on the 6th of July. That was Saturday. He is survived by his wife of 64 years, Barbara Jean, their six children, 15 grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. Again, Norman Geisler has gone on to his reward an apologist that has often been compared to uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas and Billy Graham, something in between the two. Rest in peace, my dear brother. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Shelby Abbott, author of Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress. Now, I know we're in the summer, and the stress of last year is behind students, but anticipating the year to come, we're going to talk about how to uh, navigate student stress. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Tim Brine, urban missionary, pastor, and itinerant evangelist at Skate Church. If you're not familiar with the ministry, we want to make sure we remedy that. On Thursday, we'll talk with Jack Alexander, author of The Mercy Journey. Uh, It's a a survey done by Barna, Reimagine, and we'll talk uh, about um, how millennials are or are not attracted to the faith and uh, give you something of a perspective of the landscape with regard to um, younger generations, and then on Friday we are going to lighten up. In fact, I received an email uh, from a listener just this morning who was so disappointed that she hadn't heard a Friday show this past week, um, and she was lamenting the fact that she may have missed it, but it wasn't on the podcast. I promise you, we will have a traditional, fun Friday show coming up uh, this Friday. So I'm looking forward. Uh, to that. um, So you can uh, anticipate that. Also, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear the uh, interview earlier in the day with uh, Dr. Ben Witherington, the book is Priscilla, The Life of an Early Christian. It's a great opportunity not only to consider the life of this prominent woman who is mentioned in scripture, but some of the events that took place leading up to her conversion and the development of the early church and the role that uh, women play this w- one woman in particular a prominent uh, christian again mentioned in scripture but others as well so you can check that out go to kpdq.com look up the georgine rice show and you'll find the uh, podcast link there as well want to thank james blind for producing and engineering a portion of today's program and clark hilton for uh, engineering the bulk of today's program thank you for making the georgine rice show part of your day and i hope you'll join us here tomorrow again my guest shelby abbott Pressure Points: A Guide to Navigating Student Stress. Have a good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.